Good afternoon, and uh, thank you for coming to our book forum, uh, Enron Sending the Forgotten Years by Rob Bradley. Now, you might think that, why in the world is somebody going to spend so much time writing about Enron? Well, it doesn't say this in Rob's CV, or if you download his adjunct scholar page, he's an adjunct scholar here at Cato, but he, for 16 years, he was Ken Lay's speechwriter. And so he saw Enron from the absolute inside, and uh, as a result, has created a remarkable series of books on not just Enron, but on uh, market capitalism and uh, market processes and libertarian social theory. Uh, he is, a, as I said, an adjunct scholar here and at Competitive Enterprise and a visiting fellow at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London um, and founder and CEO of the Institute for Energy Research, an educational nonprofit that has offices both here in Washington, D.C. and in Houston. Um, he is the author of eight books, including the aforementioned Enron Ascending, The Forgotten Years, 1984 to 1996, um, he holds a BA and MA in economics and a PhD in political economy and received the Julian Simon Memorial Re Re Award with a reward too, right? Um, in 2002 for his work on free market approaches to energy sustainability. Um, Rob and I go way back in no small part because of his association with my brother Robert Michaels, who is also a Cato scholar, and was PhD in the PhD program of Jack High, who I will introduce to you later. Rob? Okay, let's see if this works. Well, thank you very much for all taking time out of your busy schedules. You could have watched this from your uh, for, uh, on your computer at work or at home, but some of you have actually come here. I'll try to reward you, and Cato will try to reward you with some food, drink, and some very well-priced books. A very, I promise you, they're priced to sell. Uh, so uh, thanks so much uh, uh, for each of you. Uh, thanks to the Cato Institute. Uh, my first book came out in 1989, and I had a book form here, and I was scared to death. And we were in a much smaller building back then, uh, sort of a townhome right. uh, in the old days. But uh, uh, we've all come a long way, I guess. Um, the, uh, the book I'm talking about today is in a series. Uh, I call it the Political Capitalism uh, Series. Um, uh, I think this is a very... A uh, vibrant area of research in classical liberalism, uh, the uh, the free market corporation versus its uh, its op opposite, uh, the uh, politically uh, active, uh, engaged uh, corporation, which is a response to the incentives of today's uh, mi uh, mixed economy. Uh, the the CEOs in today's uh, very mixed economy have a uh, lots of incentives created by government intervention. Uh, to uh, reap profits that they wouldn't be able to reap in a in a free market economy, and certainly uh, Enron, as I'll try to show, is uh, the really the number one example in the in the history of American capitalism of, of such a, a corporation. The first book here was a worldview book. Second book was uh, the prehistory of Enron, which gets into a lot of natural gas and electricity. Uh, history and uh, regulation, and the current book 
uh, looks at uh, really the forgotten, neglected years of Enron, which to me set the stage for what happened later, uh, uh, which has been so extensively uh, chronicled. So I'm feeling, trying to fill in a lot of blanks here. Uh, there's a quotation from uh, Harvard uh, business historian, uh, Professor uh, Malcolm Salter, who wrote the definitive book on uh, Enron uh, back in uh, 2008. And he said, quote, we still have much to learn about and learn from Enron's remarkable history to understand its meaning for 21st century American capitalism. Uh, well, why Enron? Uh, you know, a company that uh, went bankrupt 16 years ago. And it was a company that was around in merged form for about 17 years. I think the first point is it is the most debated, studied business scandal of, uh, of our era. Second, uh, the mainstream view is that capitalism failed in theory uh, and in practice. Uh, that was the interpretation uh, in 2002 when events were uh, happening. It uh, is still the interpretation on the 5th, 10th, and uh, uh, 15th anniversaries of the company. Third, uh, in a very unique way, uh, uh, Enron practiced what uh, economists call rent-seeking and regulatory gaming to an extent never seen before. And uh, in particular, Enron... Uh, in uh, uh, specializing in energy, uh, pioneered and enabled uh, a lot of uh, the energy policy that later uh, became associated with uh, Barack Obama and which is today associated with the progressive left. Uh, third, I think uh, Enron is ripe for classical liberal analysis, uh, an opportunity to codify and extend classical liberal business uh, theory. In other words, that Enron uh, it was so unique and in such a pure form that uh, uh, it almost uh, becomes an ideal type of some behaviors that we all have to guard against. Now, let me s s say at, uh, at the outset that there were really two Enrons. There were the pipelines, there was Enron Oil and Gas, now EOG Resources, which is the largest pr crude oil producer in the lower 48. Uh, and it was uh, that company that came out of Enron, uh, Mark Papa, the CEO, that uh, really was the one who's credited with hydraulic fr uh, fracturing with oil. We think of George Mitchell with natural gas. Well, it was an EOG resources executive, an EOG that pioneered it, along with uh, at least one other company, uh, with crude oil. So there's a lot of history here. So Enron is a, a worldview-forming, worldview-lasting event. And if you do a Google search to see uh, uh, the number of uh, uh, mentions of Enron uh, as a major business scandal, along with the other major business scandal of uh, the American experience, you'll see that it's way up there, uh, right behind the, the uh, 1870s uh, credit a mo mobile. Uh, someone speak French that can help me with that, Orrin? Uh, but certainly much uh, greater than Teapot Dome, uh, WorldCom, uh, and uh, the Bernie uh, Madoff scandal. Uh, Bernie Madoff scandal's uh, uh, well uh, under a million compared to these. So you see Arthur Anderson over there, 22 and a half 
million. Uh, it easily takes the prize, but remember that it was the, uh, um, its work with Enron was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back that led to Arthur Anderson uh, going out of business. Uh, the very wise uh, George Will uh, referred to Enron as a systemic failure where all the major checks and balances of the capitalist system were compromised, didn't do a good job, uh, uh, and indeed the invisible hand of Adam Smith trembled because of Enron. And uh, William Niskanen, the late uh, chairman of Cato, right after Enron, he went into damage control and put together a number of top scholars to uh, analyze Enron, uh, and they published uh, two books, and they had uh, uh, conferences and just did a whole lot of work dissecting what was wrong uh, with Enron. Um, um, I think their work is great, but I wish uh, William Niskanen was here today to see how may, perhaps I have uh, completed the analysis that he started. Uh, at the time, uh, Enron was Exhibit A, it probably still is, uh, for uh, uh, critics of capitalism to uh, argue the point that uh, left to its own devices, free market capitalism uh, uh, creates uh, major problems and we must have regulation. And out of Enron, it was we need new regulation, better regulation. There wasn't the idea of, of uh, deregulation or the thought that perhaps the unintended consequence of previous regulation uh, set up uh, um, uh, set up uh, what Ken Lay ended up uh, doing uh, at Enron. A business ethicist at Rice University, uh, for example, uh, quote, the Enron value set was an extreme laissez-faire ideology of absolutely free, uh, i.e. absolutely unregulated markets. Uh, Diane Swanson, business ethicist at Kansas State, she even went so far as to uh, testify before Congress there should be a uh, government rule that all MBA students uh, take a course in business ethics. So it was uh, quite a reaction. Um, now, Enron is a free market company. Uh, think again. Uh, while uh, there were aspects of Enron that were, uh, were market-oriented, and with the interstate pipelines, for example, they were very regulated, but virtually everything they did was toward liberalizing rates in terms of service. So really, Enron on, with the interstate pipelines was pushing uh, for uh, liberalization, uh, but virtually everything else, uh, there were so many profit centers that directly or indirectly benefited from government uh, intervention. Uh, the asset light strategy with interstate gas transmission and interstate electricity transmission was based on mandatory open access where the, uh, the uh, pipelines and transmission wires uh, had to be make, made available to third parties who were uh, buying and selling gas and using uh, the transmission to get it to final markets mandatory open access. And a utility person said, well, it's kind of uh, like uh, 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 someone coming into your home and uh, dancing in your living room without permission. And uh, some libertarians refer to this as asset uh, uh, collectivism. Uh, but mandatory open access uh, allowed Enron to commoditize natural gas uh, at the wholesale level uh, and uh, try to do the same 
uh, with electricity at the wholesale level. Green energy strategy. Uh, Ken Lay, with a natural gas focus, uh, went after the coal, uh, uh, went after the other two fossil fuels, and he was the one that created a split for the first time within the fossil fuel industry. First, the natural gas versus coal, and then natural gas versus oil. So he split the fossil fuel industry into three, um, and there was, um, uh, he was very interested in pricing uh, carbon dioxide, uh, CO2, for the first time, taking an unregulated uh, emission and regulating it, and there were no less than uh, seven uh, profit centers that Enron had around the idea of uh, of uh, making coal and uh, oil uh, more expensive relative to uh, natural gas. Uh, developing country infrastructure, XM financing. Uh, Enron received $7.2 billion of uh, credit guarantees, some sort of credit aid from uh, several dozen government agencies, almost all U.S., but some abroad, uh, for some... I think it was 38 projects in 29 countries. Wow, no one's ever done that before. So Enron was uh, uh, developing infrastructure in the developing countries where it was very high risk, where they, uh, they got higher rates of return because they weren't in a bidding process against others. The, the oil majors, uh, they didn't want to go to the undeveloped uh, area. They were... Uh, making their money in more traditional areas. So this was uh, another niche. And I mentioned the interstate pipelines, and there's even more regulation that's not on here, but you, uh, you get the idea. Now, solar power and wind power. Guess what? The Enron resuscitated the very troubled solar power industry in 1995 by... Uh, buying one half of Amico's SolarX and uh, putting a lot of capital into it and building building it up. Uh, before then, the major oil companies, uh, the Exxon, Arco, Mobil, uh, they uh, invested in solar. It didn't work. They got out of the business. There was only one company left. It was in trouble. Enron uh, came in and uh, resuscitated that industry. With wind power, the same uh, story for the U.S. wind power industry. There are two major players, Kinetech and Zahn Systems. Kinetech actually went bankrupt. Zahn was in big trouble. Uh, Enron uh, made a, uh, 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 bought uh, Zahn uh, Energy Systems in early 1997 and uh, built it up and, and out of bankruptcy, uh, Enron sold Wind Energy Company to GE, and GE is the largest uh, member of the American Wind Energy Association today. So, uh, as Daniel Jurgen said, I don't have the quote off the top of my head, but basically he said, Enron rescued the U.S. wind industry. So with solar and wind, uh, Enron, uh, this was part of Ken Lay's strategy. Ken Lay also uh, began pushing the global warming issue the very year, uh, 1988, that James Hansen gave the, uh, his testimony that really uh, launched uh, uh, the climate alarm. And this was a full decade ahead of uh, John Brown and BP. 
So uh, Enron and Kinlay started the civil war within the fossil fuel industry on the climate issue. Now, something else that's related to the rent-seeking I just talked about, but is a little different, and that is regulatory gaming. Uh, no company had ever done this before, but we have a very complex accounting system and tax code. And uh, very smart people can dig into the minutia and find out ways to get desired results. And Enron became a master of gaming complex regulation. And Enron later did this uh, uh, in 1999-2000 out in California with the rules, uh, the electricity rules. And that's a whole other uh, story that I'll uh, look into in my next book. So um, for fun, I put together the uh, two annual reports here. One to the left is a predecessor company of Enron, Houston Natural Gas from 1931. It's just three pages, and it's not even audited on the outside. It's an internal document. This is before the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, then to the uh, right uh, is uh, Enron's last annual report, 56 pages, and the accountants and regulators pretty much concluded that virtually everything in this annual report uh, was not illegal. So why did this uh, unaudited report from uh, 1931 somehow protect consumers, yet this 56 report uh, with thousands of regulators at the SEC, why did it not uh, uh, protect consumers? And I think this gets to a, a, a key point of classical liberal analysis that we need simple rules for a complex world. This is a book by Richard Epstein, he says the more complex uh, things become, the more you have to rely on, on general rules. And if there's a question of fraud, uh, take it up with the judge and the jury uh, uh, regarding corporate uh, reporting. So uh, through gaming and all these uh, profit centers that have to do with government intervention, uh, Enron is anything but a free market company. Now, you can summarize Enron by saying uh, you can get from entrepreneurial overambition all the way down to surprise and bankruptcy. And there's lots of uh, failures, lots of um, bankruptcies that occur through creative destruction in the market. But there was something very different about Enron when you combine political rent-seeking, uh, um, uh, ethical deviations and all the gaming that went around uh, went on. So, on this simple um, schematic, I'll put government intervention there <laughs> with political rent seeking, accounting, reporting, gamesmanship, even some fraud. I'll put government intervention there by uh, creating the incentives to uh, game the system. And even with ethical deviations, uh, and I'll talk about that more here in a little bit, rank imprudence, uh, and this became uh, more and more uh, evident uh, as the years go by, but even in the years that I look at, uh, there was uh, uh, many more problems than uh, commonly believed. But if you put all three of these together, I had to come up with a new term to describe uh, these three behaviors 
and, I, and the term I've come up with is, is contracapitalism, that Enron was a contracapitalist company. They weren't an anti-capitalist company in any, any means. Uh, Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling and others uh, promoted the idea of free enterprise, uh, uh, competition, uh, consumer gains, but the result was something very different. Now, um, you know, on ethics, I'm just going to give a, a brief example here of uh, what I call path dependence, where you make little deviations from best business practices. Those deviations can grow and grow and become a problem. Um, how are we doing on time? We're good. Um, in 1984, right after Ken Lay took over, uh, he kind of told his board that Enron's travel business would go to his sister's company, and he was part owner. He wasn't going to make much money off this, but, uh, you know, economies of scale, she'll do good service. And the, and the number two at, uh, at the time, Jim Wazell, who came from the predecessor company before Ken Lay joined, he said, oh, this is bad, but the board was silent. And then you go all the way to 1999, where there's an ethics waiver for the chief financial officer, Andy Fastow, to uh, make money for himself and for Enron, uh, uh, doing deals with Enron. Uh, you know, everyone looks at that ethics waiver and go, this is crazy. How could it happen? But if you look at it as path dependence and one thing leading to another, you can actually get from small beginnings to something that you couldn't imagine at the beginning. And I can fill this in. There's a lot of other conflicts of interest, nepotism, uh, that was going on. Okay, let's see. Uh, so the contra-capitalist business, there's three elements. Uh, one is rent-seeking, we talked about that. The second is what I call philosophical, uh, philosophic fraud, and that is where there's strategic deceit by an individual company, but it's not enough where it's a prosecutable matter. Okay, it can be a half-truth where the truth part of it, you get the person's confidence and you don't tell them the rest of it. It could be just not speaking up, something that's very relevant and pertinent and you hide it. Uh, there's a, a number of, uh, of, of areas of philosophic fraud. Uh, and the third is uh, rank imprudence where there's clearly reckless behavior uh, going on. And there's so much of it, it is subjective. Uh, you know, entrepreneurs, they make mistakes, they, they have certain ventures, but in Enron's case, when you look at the, to the, the rank risk-taking that was going on, and even Enron employees, I think if you'll read my book, you'll see there was much more risk, uh, unhedged risk going on than, uh, than you would have realized. I found that out as an Enron employee. And you, you think of Enron in the past, think of Tesla today. Okay, where, you have, where there's a lot of government dependence, there's a lot of de, uh, strategic deceit going on, and there's, uh, there's clearly imprudence. And so this is a little schematic, <coughs> market capitalism versus contra-capitalism. So as far as the, you know, the public policy implication here, you know, we don't want boom and bust with businesses or individuals or the economy. We want sustainable progress. Of course, you know, with creative destruction and all, there's going to be ups and downs. But generally, it's going to be smoother and you end up with a lot more wealth uh, as um, a result. Uh, 
other contra capitalist companies, uh, Tesla, uh, Beyond Petroleum, BP, John Brown, GE under Jeff Immelt, uh, and Duke Energy uh, uh, under uh, James E. Rogers. Uh, uh, these are all very interesting case studies, and I'm going to kind of go quickly here, but basically this is a quote from the Wall Street Journal this year where he says, uh, Tesla says it expects to turn a profit in the third or fourth quarters of this year, but there is simply no reason to take their projections of the future seriously. You know, this isn't an editorial, it's just business uh, writing. Oh, I don't want to... <laughs> Uh, leave the guy alone. Uh, I don't know if that's contra-capitalist or not. Uh, we'll leave that for another time. Um, Brent Stevens, uh, in, a op, uh, in an editorial in the New York Times, talked about how uh, Elon Musk can't handle criticism. He scolds the, me the media. He suckers people to fork over cash in exchange for promises he hasn't kept. And, uh, you know, this is crazy. It's going on before our very eyes. Regulators seem to look the other way. You know, what's going on here? And I think the answer is that Tesla is incredibly politically correct. And Enron, uh, uh, during its boom, doing, uh, with green energy, wind, solar, see uh, 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 favoring uh, cap and trade for carbon dioxide, uh, Enron was very politically correct too, and that contributed to a good to good press. And intellectuals uh, loved Enron more than any other company. BP. This is interesting. There's a book written on uh, a run to failure BP and the making of the Deepwater Horizon disaster. Uh, this gentleman, uh, Abraham uh, Lusgarden, he's no libertarian. He's just uh, um, you know he comes to his own conclusion. He basically documented how. BP under John Brown in the Beyond Petroleum era uh, had major environmental problems, safety problems uh, uh, in the uh, in 2005, 2006 on, um, and they had this Beyond Petroleum uh, critics would call it greenwashing, but at the same time uh, they're you know investing uh, very heavily in in fossil fuels. Um, and here, this is a very interesting quotation. He says, many inside the company, including Tony Hayward, have long thought that Brown was distracted by his pet issues of climate change and environmentalism and by his flirtations with the public spotlight. They thought he had, that he had been obsessing with branding the company and lowering its carbon footprint at the expense of BP's real business, producing and selling oil. You sort of have the imperial... Uh, the PR uh, CEO uh, here. Um, so, Deepwater Horizon uh, accident, you can trace that as sort of the opportunity cost of trying to be green and fight global warming. Uh, so there's all this imaging going on and there isn't the attention at the core. And you didn't have these accidents at ExxonMobil, for example, they changed their corporate culture after Valdez. Uh, in, in 1980, uh, but BP, uh, they just, there's an opportunity cost to all this uh, uh, emphasis on climate and being the green energy company, and uh, that has something to do with uh, all the accidents that happened there. James E. Jim, Jim Rogers, great guy. All these people are great guys, okay, but they're responding to incentives, so I'm going to blame this system 
um, uh, perhaps more than the individuals, you know, and that's something we can talk about. But great guy. He was my big boss when I joined Enron, and uh, he was head of Enron's Interstate Pipelines, which was most of the company uh, through the 80s. And he, uh, Natural Gas Week described him as a visionary missionary of natural gas marketing and wonderkind executive of Enron Corp. Well, in 1988, he got hired away by a uh, public uh, electric uh, uh, utility company, public service company of Indiana, later Synergy, uh, that was bought by Duke, and he rose to the top. Well, the company he, uh, he took over was very heavy in coal assets. They were one of the dirtiest, dirtiest um, emitters in the, in, of all utility companies in the country. Well, he begins a dialogue with the environmentalists that want to regulate CO2 and put coal out of business. And his strategy was, and he says here, if you're not at the table, you're going to be on the menu. So what he was trying to do was to figure out a way to uh, cut back, close down his coal plants where he could get cr a regulatory credit under a cap-and-trade program where he could keep his uh, investors whole and maybe more, more than whole. So he went, uh, he began working, um, giving speeches to the industry. He was, you know, the first, he was a real outlier here, and he said at the meetings of the Edison Electric Institute, their, uh, uh, their big off-site events that no one would play golf with them. Uh, and he was very unpopular. And even some of his directors were very upset with him. But he had this complete new approach. It was a, a political capitalism model. And indeed, Ken Lay had that uh, model. So Rogers took uh, the Ken Lay-Enron uh, 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 political activism model from the natural gas industry to the electric industry. And you know what? Jim Rogers gets the uh, hopes and expectations up for the environmental groups, and he does natural things like, you know, they have to build a new coal plant, and there are protests at the company. There's protests in front of his house, okay? So the question there is, can you really appease your opponents uh, in this way? But it's a very interesting case study. Now, the richness of the Enron story, and it's a plug for the book, is that a, a good book about a business and an individual has to relate to themes that are much bigger than that business and the individual. And I think with Enron, that's the case with natural gas, electricity, environmentalism, corporate governance in general, Houston, Texas, EOG resources that came out of of, of Enron, that's the, uh, the, the number one oil producer in, in the United States. Um, and there's uh, other examples. Kinder Morgan that came out of Enron, the largest midstream company in the, in the, in the United States. So there's, there's lots of uh, bigger things. For those of you interested in regulation, here's uh, some of the laws. I know it's hard to read. Some of the laws that Enron was involved with, responded to, even shaped in some cases. Cynthia Sanher over there, uh, uh, my good friend, she uh, uh, did a lot of work in this area. Um, uh, administrative regulation, uh, in addition to the laws. Uh, and then how about um, all the uh, free market think tanks and the lobby groups that are involved? It becomes very, very busy. And all this uh, 
We have a political economy index to this book, and there's more than uh, 1,000 entries, uh, the uh, level one, level two uh, entries. So we had to split the subject index into a political economy index to cover uh, all these things. Uh, all these regulatory terms you hear about, uh, it's all part of the Enron story. They were right in the middle of it all. So this is a business treatise. It's, uh, it's about 800 pages, but I think it's, it's very readable. Uh, and as I said before, it's not only a business book, but a political economy book uh, in the classical liberal tradition. Uh, I have uh, some good endorsements from uh, Malcolm Salter of uh, Harvard Business School. Uh, and uh, he wrote the, uh, the definitive, definitive book in 2008, and uh, I've tried to build on that, or really to fill in the gaps of the so-called forgotten years that to me set up the story to come. There's some quotations there. Uh, Tyler Cowan, a very, no, uh, very nice quotation over at George Mason University. He says it's one of the most remarkable contributions to business history in years. Anyone interested in American capitalism should read this book. But for another perspective, my mother, uh, she said uh, five or six pages gets me right to sleep. That's a quote. That's a quote. So there's a, uh, uh, this, is, this is another marketing uh, angle uh, for the book. It's a sleep aid. For those that aren't interested in corporations or energy, uh, this could be a book that could help them. Uh, three final thoughts. Um, one, uh, Enron defined contra capitalism, political capitalism, political correctness, regulatory gaming, and other crony sports of the mixed economy. In broad terms, Enron was about postmodernist philosophy and the unintended consequences of government intervention that allowed the worst to get on top. Second, uh, quote, Enron was a systemic failure of American capitalism, but it was not capitalism as classically understood and defined. In other words, in a, in a true free market economy, Enron and Kinlay would be unknown to history, uh, in my opinion. And finally, Enron's lessons regarding business management, reality, not illusionism, incrementalism, not only revolution, win-win, not win-lose, and just doing the right thing regarding political economy, wealth creation, and rent-seeking, simple rules for a complex world, Good Profit, Not Bad. And Good Profit, Not Bad comes out of the uh, business philosophy of Charles Koch uh, in his book, Good Profit, where uh, he talks about principled entrepreneurship and market-based management, which to me is a roadmap for not only a good business, but it's also a very good toolbox or a worldview, a framework to judge businesses as capitalistic or contra-capitalistic. Final uh, comment. There was a lot of good at Enron. Uh, there were divisions, lots of uh, individuals. There was lots good, but the bad overtook uh, the good. And it was all because of a super aggressive CEO that wanted 15% compounded annual earnings growth year after year in an industry where 5% was good. You know, Enron didn't have patents, uh, but they, what they, had was a very politicized energy economy uh, where there was a lots of first mover advantage uh, for uh, uh, to uh, exploit existing government intervention or even create new intervention. Thank you. Thank you. That was really good.
Did I tell you about my 800 shares of Enron that I rode all the way into the ground? <laughs> I was taking tax losses on that for about 10 years. Uh, <clears throat> Jack High from uh, Emeritus Professor uh, Economics and Public Policy at George Mason University is going to give us his comments and his impressions of um, Rob's presentation and his book. Um, Jack is a very important person in free market world. He was one of the early directors of something called the Market Process Center at George Mason. That became the Mercatus Institute. Uh, he was acting school dean of the School of Business, um, chairman of the program on social and organizational learning. It goes on and on and on. Uh, he also has taught at Harvard, Georgetown, uh, Charles University in Prague, and elsewhere. He's extremely highly thought of, and we're very, very pleased to have Jack High give her commentary today. Thank you, Pat, and it's a, a pleasure to be here at uh, Cato, the house that I think of is the house that uh, Ed Crane built. And for 40 years, Cato has been a, uh, an important voice for liberal ideas or libertarian ideas, if you prefer. And I hope they are for the next uh, 40. And uh, speaking of important uh, liberal uh, voices, um, <clears throat> uh, Rob Bradley has uh, written a book. It is a, uh, a history book. It is a book on economic theory. It is a book on political theory that I think is going to last for a, a very long time uh, simply because of the, the detail and because of the um, uh, analytical insight that he brings into uh, the story of Enron. So this third volume, Enron Ascending, is mostly uh, about, um, whoop, there we go. Can you see that? Well, you can kind of see it. This is mostly about the good times uh, at Enron. Uh, this is uh, Jeff Skilling and uh, Re Rebecca Mark, key figures in uh, Enron's growth and eventual demise. I'm not sure who Santa is there. I, I don't think it's Rob, though. I'm, I, I look closely. <laughs> Do you know who Santa is there, Rob? No, that's... Uh, Joe Sutton, maybe. Joe Sutton, maybe. I keep shutting this thing off. There he is. Uh, and this book, uh, The Good Times, uh, <laughs> uh, set up the bad times. And of course, they went from being a, a revered, innovative company to, uh, <clears throat> to back inside the box there. Uh, actually, this, uh, this work of uh, uh, Rob's is, uh, an ex uh, we've had recently, uh, liberal scholarship has had not one, but uh, two trilogies. Um, I don't know how to work this. The, the one you've heard summarized here today, uh, Rob's book on uh, political capitalism, and the other is uh, Deirdre McCloskey's uh, trilogy on the, the uh, bourgeois uh, the bourgeoisie, bourgeois virtues, bourgeois um, equality, bourgeois dignity. 
And these two uh, books, or these two works, have some <clears throat> striking similarities. Uh, first, they were both written by economists. Second, they are both chock full of history. Neither one of these books would have the force that they have were it not for the history that's contained in them. Uh, third, the, the economics, the economic theory that underlies both these books is what is commonly called Austrian economics, but is more descriptively called enterprise economics. And uh, fourth, and what makes both of these works so unusual, is that both of them place a lot of emphasis on the ethical foundations of capitalism. Uh, both of them rely a lot on, um, on Adam Smith. So Adam Smith not only uh, emphasized prudence in, in commercial life, which of course all of us economists emphasize, but he also uh, emphasized justice, courage, temperance, um, and to these virtues, which are essential, Smith said, to commercial life, uh, McCloskey added the transcendental virgin, uh, virtues, uh, uh, faith, hope, and charity. And Rob added the, uh, the self-help virtues of Samuel Smiles, uh, and also the rational egoism of uh, Ayn Rand. And I find uh, this, it's a very unusual combination for economists to write a book that not only has a lot of history, that uses Austrian economics, that, uh, <clears throat> that relies on the ethical uh, foundations of Marcus. I find it a very effective combination. There are a lot of insights in both uh, McCloskey's trilogy and uh, Rob's work that we would not get were it not for this combination. So I'm hoping that uh, this is the, the, the start of a trend in economic analysis. We'll, we'll see. Now, um, on some of the points that, um, the major points in Rob's book, I think this one that he mentioned in his, uh, in his uh, talk here, that Enron's failure is not the failure of capitalism. I think that is, uh, that's, that's a, a point that he makes very well. And I, I think anyone reading uh, this book will uh, agree with this. He, he brought a lot of uh, evidence to bear on this. Um, as he mentioned, Enron was not a free market a company. It did not advocate for free markets, even though that was their rhetoric, and sometimes very eloquent rhetoric coming out of Enron on the, the virtues of markets, the virtues of competition. But this is not what they were doing. What they were doing was advocating for a different kind of regulation, and, um, and that, that regulation was, was a mandatory open access where if you owned an electricity line or if you owned a pipeline, you had to ship the, uh, the product from the, the owners. 
And as uh, Bill Niskanen said to his, uh, said uh, at the time, he said, look, mandated access is a bad idea in part because it is a violation of property rights and it is not genuine deregulation. Uh, another uh, uh, non-free market aspect or non-market aspect of the Enron story is that uh, they were regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, and w one of the things I was astonished to find in this book is that the SEC approved mark-to-market accounting for Enron. Um, so um, Enron used this kind of accounting, mark-to-market accounting, as a way to mislead investors, as a way to mislead uh, stock analysts, and had it not been for that ruling by the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, um, Enron may not have been so successful in, in misleading its investors and, um, and regulators. And I would add to this that uh, this is, um, to, to call the failure of Enron the failure of a free market or an unregulated market is kind of an odd way to reason. It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a double standard. And as evidence for this, I would just mention here that, uh, that when journalists uh, engage in a false reporting, when uh, magazines or newspapers uh, engage in fraudulent or false reporting, or uh, even when uh, religious leaders, our, our pastors and our priests and our rabbis uh, in, are engaged in financial fraud or other kinds of, of hanky-panky, uh, you don't hear a big outcry from economists or from uh, journalists that this is a failure of the free press or this is a failure of freedom of religion. Instead, what they do, and which it is entirely proper to do, is they put the responsibility on the bad actors and the bad organizations. And this is exactly what uh, Rob Bradley has done in analyzing Enron. He has laid the blame for the failure of Enron, A, on the executives, the, the chief culprit being, of course, Ken Lay, but there were many others as well. In fact, it was remarkable to me how many um, collaborators uh, Ken Lay had in this uh, Enron story. Um, he puts the, the blame on the corporate culture, on the board, the oversight board, on the regulators, and this is exactly where the, the blame should be, uh, not on the, the system as a whole. Another uh, point I think is one, uh, one of the points that I think is one of the, the main contributions of, of this uh, work is this idea of uh, contra-capitalists, which uh, Rob has uh, talked about. And uh, I'll just, th these are, there are three categories here of contra-capitalism. One is seeking government favors. Uh, a second is outright illegal behavior, fraud, and so on. And the third is unethical behavior, uh, deceit or gaming or and uh, so on. 
And uh, this, this uh, idea of contra-capitalism is used to great effect by Rob. It is, as far as I know, a, uh, an original a contribution to economic theory. And um, I, I think it holds a lot of potential. But I do want to uh, add here that it's early days in this where we're, where we're combining uh, history and ethics and economics and it's often not so easy to apply this concept. And I'm, I'm going to briefly recount the story of Valhalla. This was the oil trading operation of Enron. They were based in a small town north of New York City, Valhalla, New York. And in 1986, they, they reported terrific profits, $27 million worth of profits uh, from oil trading. This was a third of the entire corporation's profits that year. The following year, about the fall of 1987, Enron corporate headquarters found out that these $27 million weren't real profits at all, that they were paper profits that were uh, generated by cooking the books. And that not only did Enron not earn $27 million in 1986, they were on the hook for $300 million in losses in 1987. This is enough to give anyone a heart attack. It's enough to, to perhaps bankrupt the company, certainly enough to get Ken Lay dismissed or, or for a hostile takeover. I mean, this is a disaster for the company. So what does Enron do? They send in an honest trader um, and a very competent trader. They send him to Valhalla to clean up this mess. And he actually succeeds. I mean, it is a remarkable story. It should be a TV drama. Uh, the, way, the way this, this man goes in and manages to unwind these positions at Enron. Now, Enron doesn't escape free. I think they end up with uh, $85 million of losses. But still, it is a remarkable story. But now, how does he do this? How does this uh, Mike Muckleroy do this? He does it through deception and through, uh, in part, he does it through deception and through threat. So he shows up, and the first thing he does is he deceives the staff, look, your boss is going on vacation for a couple of weeks. I'm just going to be here, and it's business as usual. Then he conveys to the whole market, other traders, it's just business as usual at Enron. He also conveys to the market that, that Enron uh, they're really not in, 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 in bad shape here. We've got lots of oil to sell. As a matter of fact, they didn't. They were way short. They were, I forget how many thousands of barrels short, but they were way short. But he conveys uh, the opposite to the... And then one of the rogue traders, he says to him, uh, this M Mike Muckleroy says to one of these uh, rogue traders, look, he says, if you'll cooperate with me, I'll, I'll testify on your behalf. He said, if you don't, he said, I'm a former Navy SEAL. I've tracked down guys and killed them before. And I don't lose any sleep over it. So it's your, your choice. I mean, this is very clear and a credible threat to this guy. Well, of course, the guy cooperates. So now, <laughs> this is, this is uh, contra-capitalism, right? Deceit and threats. And yet Mike Muckleroy comes across as something of a, an, a, an admirable character in the book. 
So what do we conclude? Well, we can take the cynical way out and say, well, if this, these contra-capitalist acts succeed, then they're good, they're okay. But that takes away all of the moral force of this idea of contra-capitalism. Uh, so the other alternative, and there may be more, but the one I see is to, is to uh, figure out, okay, when is it okay to deceive? When is it okay not to be completely truthful? When is it okay to uh, threaten in, in the business world? Are there times when it's okay? This is why I say we're at early stages here in, in considering this idea of, of contra-capitalism, and I think Rob is going to be a, an ideal person to, to work on this. Now, I have two, how much longer do I have here? Just two minutes, three minutes? He can take five. He was, he was quick. Okay, good. <laughs> so I'll, I'll be quick here. I, I have two uh, uh, criticisms of, these are not fundamental criticisms of the work by any means, but um, there's, they are uh, points that I hope Rob will think about. I think all of us that, that work in this area of studying markets uh, should think about. And the first is that capitalism is a very misleading term, and we ought to get rid of it. Um, and why, why does it mislead us? Well, capital goods are one, uh, one kind of input into the production process. The other kinds traditionally are land and labor. And these are equally important to, to, uh, to the, mar to the uh, functioning of the market. And so if you, if you call the system capitalism, it leads to the impression that, that capitalists and capital are somehow privileged. And as a matter of fact, this is how we got this name capitalism. It wasn't adopted by, by proponents of the market. It was adopted by its enemies. And this is not true, or at least it shouldn't be true of markets. Capitalists shouldn't be in a privileged position. So for example, the, the uh, Oxford English Dictionary uh, says, it here's how it defines capitalism. This is a quote, a system which favors capitalists. Well, as a matter of fact, the modern, uh, you know, the use of capital goods is ancient. It goes clear back to our Stone Age ancestors, you know, making out flint tools and so on. There's nothing special about the use of capital or the existence of capitalists in the modern economy. What's special about our economy, what's special about the United States and Britain and Japan and, and the modern economies that have benefited us all so much, what's special about it is that we have um, a, a freedom to pursue our own economic opportunities. That's what distinguishes this system. And when you give people, general people, you know, peasants like me and others, uh, freedom to act, some few of them will, will successfully innovate. And that is what is special about our modern economic system. By the way, McCloskey makes this point very well. And, it, and our, our name ought to reflect that. So I would suggest that we call this the enterprise economy, and if we want to distinguish it from, from political uh, interference, we can, we can uh, distinguish it through free and, um, and political capitalism. So for those of us who would like to uh, get rid of overweening government in the economy, I would say that we should also, on our side, 
I get rid of this name, uh, capitalism. Uh, and another, <clears throat> one last thing, and I'll just take a, a minute on this, but uh, it was, what was jarring to me in this, um, in this study is to see postmodern used as almost a, um, a four-letter word. I mean, very uh, denigrating uh, throughout the work. And, uh, uh, but I, I would, what, what made it so jarring to me is that uh, I, I'm not an expert in, in philosophy, but the two people that I have learned about postmodernism from are Don Lavoie, who was a mentor of, of Rob's and who uh, advocated a, a postmodern philosophy called hermeneutics, uh, which really emphasizes the importance of liberty to, uh, to a scientific inquiry and really tries to, to understand understanding. That is, to come to terms with how it is that we learn about the physical and the social world. It does not encourage uh, irresponsible behavior. It does not encourage uh, ignoring reality. And the other person I learned about postmodern philosophy from was, was Deirdre McCloskey, who, uh, who's uh, done a lot of research into this, uh, uh, the rhetoric of economics, that is the, the methods of uh, argu argumentation that are, are proper to economics. And yes, logic is a part of this, but so is metaphor, so is narrative. And um, uh, both of these oppose modern positivism, which uh, I think Rob would also oppose. And I hope Rob doesn't take offensive to this, but I look on his book as a postmodern book, postmodern in the sense of, sorry, Rob, postmodern in the sense of. Uh, McCloskey and uh, Lavoie. And uh, just to uh, conclude, uh, let me say I don't, do not regard that as an insult, but a, but a great compliment. I think this is a, um, can I get this? I think this is the most, uh, no, I've lost it. The most complete and insightful work on Enron to date. I think this book is gonna have a long life uh, uh, simply because of the quality of research and analytics that it presents. Thank you. That was great. Um, thanks to, to both of you. We have about 15 minutes for questions, and uh, um, I can't pronounce your name. Oh, oh, Ugana, okay, has a microphone. Please, uh, before you state your question and uh, before you don't give us your PhD thesis, uh, do state your name and your organization if you would. So anybody interested in raising their hand and praising this wonderful work, please uh, raise your hand. All the way to the front. Thank you very much. That was both presentations were so, so thought provoking, and it'll take me a while to absorb it all. But one aspect of um, Enron that uh, I think didn't come out completely in the remarks 
although you mentioned it when you ref referenced your loss on the stocks. Mm -hmm. There's I plenty. Think big, big part of the, not only the stock loss, but it was the, the narrative that the uh, leaders of Enron in the end bit, attempted to bail out themselves, but you know, caused so much damage to the financial holdings of employees um, who had inve invested their uh, pension holdings or their 401s, et cetera, in there. That whole aspect of, uh, you know, capitalism, when you have a large organization, uh, the ethics of your responsibility to those who are invested in your company, either as employees or as shareholders, value holders, um, you know, a lot of regulation is gone to providing protection for that. So how do you see, what is the, uh, is that a part of contra capitalism as well, or is it a, is contra capitalism and political capitalism, do they sort of reverb off of each other, trying to move, you know, always reacting to the last war, so to speak? Um, yeah, contra capitalism and political capitalism kind of go together. Um, you know, I, I put the blame on this, uh, not so much on a Ken Lay. I knew Ken Lay really well. He was a family friend. He was a gentleman. He had empathy. He had incredible qualities, but he had some flaws. Uh, and uh, so I'm blaming the incentives of this, of uh, the incentives that were available to Ken Lay that he took uh, he took advantage of and went way too far with, and I think he ended up fooling himself. Now, regarding the, um, uh, 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 maybe I can talk a little bit about my own experience. I'm there, and I don't see the problems. I've been there a long time. The new employees were seeing all the problems I didn't see. I was really conflicted, as were almost all uh, long-time employees, because we had a whole lot of stock. And if someone is uh, starting rumors about, you know, risk and uh potential liability, they aren't a good team player. And, uh, you know, we had the stock price in the elevators uh, uh, and all over the building. And when that stock price went down, it just, you know, wasn't a, wasn't a good thing. Um, also, we had a lot of incentives to uh, 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 diversify, and we never did. Uh, some of us never did. So there's a problem of self-help here. Um, uh, where we didn't do the things we should have done, we weren't following best practices ourselves. There's also the, uh, and this might get more to your question, the Sec Securities and Exchange Commission, they're supposed to protect us all, right? And in the Bernie Madoff uh, disaster, there was a New York Times article about how the victims were more upset with the SEC than they were Bernie Madoff. Uh, so... Uh, in a in a under a very regulated uh, in a political capitalism where things are supposed to be done for you, uh, you don't look after yourself uh, nearly as much as you uh, should, and you can end up getting the very bad results of the thousands of employees that lost so much money. Uh, so I just have a sub question to this: Where do you put Facebook and Google yeah. in this world? I can't answer that next time. Uh, the Gentleman in the tan tie and the white shirt, please. Thank you. Uh, my name is Theodore Gebhard. Um, I don't have a, a substantive comment, per se, to make about the book, uh, but uh, this talk uh, just reminds me of um, 
a little bit of an anecdote that I thought I would throw out there. In the 1990s, uh, I was an antitrust attorney with um, a large firm here in town, and we had uh, a number of investor-owned utilities as clients uh, throughout the country, and this was a period when um, various states were looking at restructuring possibilities for uh, retail provision of electricity and PUCs all over the country, public utility commissions all over the country. And I tell you, Enron certainly paid my bills for a number of years because they were always on the other side of that table. And um, the thing that uh, I couldn't figure out or any of my colleagues could figure out is in many of these, because we, we, we were representing IOUs in many, several of the different states. And the thing that none of us could quite figure out is Enron was paying just an army of lawyers. It must have had legal fees going through the roof. Uh, and in many of these um, states, they didn't seem to have any intention of ever um, participating in the market had the Public Utility Commission even uh, gone their direction. So and to this day, I'm still puzzled as to what was going on and why they were paying all those legal fees, um, just uh, wrap this up. Yeah, well, what end, would be the, the question? Excuse me, I was just going to relate this okay. as an anecdote, that's all. I was just sure. going to say kind of at the very end of this process, I remember uh, there was a national conference call with Gray Davis, who was then governor of California, uh, with um, several of the law firms that were representing IOUs at that time. And uh, he was not Enron's biggest fan at that time uh, the whole conference call was davis basically saying enron is a is a villain <laughs> anyway just to, like i said no substantive comment just a couple of anecdotes from that period of time but maybe representative of the culture that you were describing comment uh, okay um in the blue shirt in the back please uh, and do do tell us who you are and where you're from i'm richard sigmund with the uh, rapid energy group uh hey rob it, so two weeks ago, Jeff Skilling got let out of jail. And so if, if he was named back to the board of EOG, are you tempted to reunite the crew? <laughs> no. No. Uh, the interesting question is going to be when he, he's at a halfway house and he's going to be released in February. Um, the question is, does he want to revisit the Enron story and uh, have an opinion uh, one way or the other, or is he going to completely ignore it? And my guess is uh, it could be the latter, but uh, I would love to give him a copy of my book and have him tell me what's wrong with it. But my, this book just goes to 1996, but, he, but it talks about the, what uh, is going to happen. You know, it foreshadows and explains all the bad things that happened. But uh, uh, Jeff Skilling, I'm not sure what his vocation uh, will be. I, I do have a serious question, though. So, okay, when, when you talk about contra capitalists, uh, of which there are many, and like Aubrey McClendon is also thrown into that list, uh, Tillerson moved it more that direction than, than Lee Raymond. Do, uh, we don't like it when these people aren't on our side, you know, and when we see them a lot as dishonest or something. But you, do, you, do you blame them? Do, or do you say it's ultimately bad for the business or, or not? Kind of like in, in some ways they, they see an obvious benefit in, in a lot of ways from being PC get lauded. Yeah. Well, think if you're a CEO and uh, you're 
inherited Nietzsche's natural gas, and this huge issue comes up of global climate change, and the intellectual class in the press have one opinion, and it's the minority uh, scientists like this guy that say, no, no, no. Um, it's very easy uh, to jump on the issue and say this is good for stockholders, and we want to penalize coal to help natural gas and uh, all the rest of it. And Milton Friedman uh, even once said that uh, it is part of the fiduciary duty of a CEO to take advantage of uh, regulation, go advocate for a tariff, for example, uh, to uh, benefit your employees and stockholders. Uh, and that's why I think it's very important to take a, a different view and, and one that Charles Koch is champion of uh, a more, uh, more principled entrepreneurship where uh, uh, it should be unethical for a CEO to engage in rent-seeking activity where wealth is redistributed or reduced. Great answer. Uh, I'm just so Tesla-oriented with that answer. Uh, over here in the, in the shirt. Uh, thank you. David Benowitz, I'm retired. And uh, in your presentation, you mentioned that government interference uh, creates incentives to game the system. But doesn't just the existence of the system itself create incentives to game it uh, for somebody who's so inclined? Well, uh, I think in a, in a free market system, you know, the simple rules for a complex uh, world, uh, it's much harder to game. And I think people are looking out, out after themselves. There's a lot more self-help. You're not depending on an SEC to, uh, and thousands of regulators to protect things for you. Uh, so um, uh, I think in a free market uh, system, there'd be, it'd be much more reality-oriented, uh, much less celebrity CEOs, and uh, that uh, things would be much more transparent. Jack, you have some? Yeah. I, I, I do. I, um, in a, an unregulated market system, there are going to be people who game the system. There are, there are always going, going to be the, the, the fraudulent actors or the people who skate close to the edge. And I think those of us who, and there are going to be bankruptcies, and I think there will be spectacular bankruptcies. It's just in the nature of enterprise. Uh, you, you know, the, so you, you, have the, you have the contra capitalists, the guys that are skating close to the edge, but even good, <clears throat> honest, ethical businessmen will fail. It's in the nature of enterprise, because what you're doing in an enterprise is you're committing resources now in the expe expectation that you'll be able to earn uh, sufficient revenues to earn profits in the future. But, but even, even good, experienced, capable people are sometimes wrong. Uh, Rob has the, the story of Samuel Insull. I mean, what a tragic story. What, what, what a great, talented, good man. And he bet heavily that the U.S. electricity market would recover in the 1930s, and it did not. And he went broke. His stock, you know, it's a lot of people suffer when a when a when a company like this goes under. He himself died uh, broke and more or less alone uh, after being, you know. Uh, a captain of industry for decades in America. So I think those of us who advocate markets should face up to the fact that you're going to have gamesters, 
And you're going to have failure. You're going to have a lot of innocent people get hurt, even in a, a, in a free market. But let me add to that. I don't think Ken Lay at all was the gangster, the bad guy. Um, um, I think he uh, was too aggressive, and uh, he got into some uh, very, very bad habits. Uh, I do not think that Ken Lay was a criminal, and that might surprise a lot of you. Jeff Skilling and lots of others were. And let me uh, let me give you one example. It was before the last analyst meeting, and um, a good friend of mine was doing the graphics. He did the graphics for the graphs you just saw. And uh, uh, old Spitz, he could he could uh, stay up for 24 hours. He'd drink his snake juice. Uh, and uh, so he did all these graphics for Enron. It was 48 hours. And at the beginning, it was going from the numbers to the story. By the end of it, it was going from the story to the numbers. They would come in and say, put this bar up, do this. And it got so bad, they had to decouple the numbers from the graphs uh, in order before they sent it to Janice and the other investors that wanted to see the backup. <coughs> um, so they finish all this, and uh, they call Ken Lay, who's asleep, uh, and they have him come over at 2 a.m. in the morning and say, here's our final results. Okay, and he looks at him and, okay, he goes home, goes to sleep. Uh, and uh, is, is Ken Lay a criminal uh, because of that? No, but still he got in all sorts of bad habits that uh, led to his uh, demise. So, uh, you know, uh, bankruptcies occur, but there's something different about the whole Enron story and how all the um, stakeholders uh, and all the participants uh, were conflicted in how capitalism failed. There's something very unique here, and that's what I'm trying to bring out here. I'll take one more question before we go here. Hi, my name's Kathy Lang. I have a question for Mr. Bradley. Um, it's really about maybe your process for writing the book, how long it took you, um, you know, your research involved, maybe were you taking notes while you were there? Just maybe just briefly talk about the process of writing the book, how you went about it. How long did it take you to do this thing? <laughs> the process. Oh, you can't hear me. Sorry. The process, your research involved, how long it yeah. took. Uh, it's definitely a 10,000-hour book, uh, not only with me, but the, my research assistant. Hello, Roger. I think he's watching this from his home. Roger Donway, uh, pretty, uh, he, he spent most of his last uh, several years uh, on this. Uh, so it begins with oral interviews while I'm still at Enron because we were going to write the rah-rah story of the book. And Enron implodes, and then uh, I'm able to raise money to write a, a Lessons Learned and what was going to be one book is uh, turned into four books. It's a Robert Caro effort. I'm a poor, uh, I'm not Robert Caro, though. Uh, but uh, this has been uh, very intense. There's uh, uh, 5,400 source notes that will be put up on the Internet, more than 1,000 uh, 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 in the bibliography. And there's uh, uh, 39 appendices that will be on the Internet. So... Uh, this is a treatise, and my feeling is when you have a minority opinion, you've got to out-research everyone else. So the question is, will the, will the mainstream, will the business ethicists actually read the book and perhaps come to different conclusions? Very, very good. Uh, upstairs, 
either you can take the elevator up or um, go up this one flight of stairs. We have uh, cocktail hour, snack hour, and book signing and sales by Mr. Rob Bradley. Thank you all for attending. <laughs> <laughs>